0: Do you like police officers?
1: Yes, I do. I think they are very important to communities because they maintain order and prevent people from getting hurt.
0: Do you like police officers? Um, I like them
2: to an extent. They definitely can make me feel uneasy at times. Just, I think, just having somebody with a gun, whether they're a police officer or not, can be unnerving, no matter who you are. Although, overall, I think they are obviously important and very helpful people and they can also yeah
3: this is the officer involved podcast officer involved the film is still in production here on this program we explore questions that develop during filming that we may not otherwise be able to answer on film today is december 20th 2014 the person you're listening to who's asking those questions is Zachary Karsh. Zach is a senior at a progressive private school in middle Georgia. He and I were introduced through a mutual friend, his photography teacher, because of his interest in film.
0: What's the worst experience you've ever had with a cop?
1: Uh, As a white female, I haven't had many confrontations with the police force, but just as a bystander, I've noticed that Um, cops are often texting and driving. I've seen them speeding. I've seen them take advantage of their sirens to get past traffic when they don't actually have anywhere to be, which is frustrating, especially as a driver to me.
3: A few weeks ago, he set out to interview some of his friends about their feelings around and experiences with police officers. His questions, Do you like police officers? What's the worst experience you've ever had with a
0: cop? And... What can be done to change the way police are perceived right now?
1: In light of what's happened in Ferguson and other police incidents, I think the biggest thing they can do right now is, one, educate themselves about the population of the areas that they're overseeing, and two, create trust with the people there. Um, Otherwise, there's no way that people will be happy with the police force that's supposed to be helping them or see that that's what they're trying to do and will instead be angry by the choices that they make, which are often poor, as we've seen.
2: Okay, I'm going to answer that differently than how you asked that question. I think that it is, of course, horrible, not um, horrible the way um, justice can go for police, but also there has to be some sort of protection, because what they're doing, they're doing a job that can be a scary job, and they're, they're not very protected in terms of their rights, because I mean, if the police officers are doing scary things and stuff, and I think we're ridiculing for them for things that really, it's just part of their job in ways. Now, obviously, not just like killing people and stuff like that, but in terms of like security, and they're doing what they think is best and the best they can, and I think that is not necessarily being looked at on the police officers' side. Not that I'm defending any police officers for any of their actions.
0: The one thing I wish I would have done was doing this interview before they announced that Darren Wilson would not be indicted. That's Zach. And I didn't get the opportunity to do that. Uh, So getting their answers and opinions after kind of outrage in America, after there's been outrage in America, was really interesting. But I would have wanted to see what would have happened if I did it before. And before they kind of knew about the Ferguson problem.
3: He and I met up at a coffee shop along the railroad tracks, and my apologies, to talk about why he was interested in this project to begin with.
0: There's been a lot of, a lot of events going on in America. Uh, Ferguson, Eric Garner in New York, uh, and it is if one of the biggest, if not the biggest thing happening in America right now. Um, I have a strong opinion on the events um, and what happened. And I wanted to do something about it. I wanted to do something to educate others about it. And not just those events, but about police in general.
3: Was it hard to find people to
0: interview? Uh, It was very hard to find people to interview. I asked several people, and people were either uncomfortable talking about the subject, uncomfortable just being put on the spot and being interviewed, or um, were kind of afraid that they were going to say the wrong thing.
3: Why do you think that is?
0: Uh, I think I conducted the interviews a little more than a week after they decided to not indict da- Officer Darren Wilson and Fer- Ferguson. Um, so when that came out, a lot of people had strong beliefs and a strong opinions on, uh, about the subject. And while some people were like that, others were afraid to get their opinion out or did not know as much about the subject.
3: I guess after, after doing the interviews and talking with these people, what did you find interesting?
0: What I found interesting was I did three interviews, a total of three interviews. Two were uh, Caucasian, one female, one male, and the other was an African-American male. And when the African-American male was answering the questions, he was really answering from experience, um, his experience with police officers, while the two Caucasians we're kind of just answering generally, um, you know, what, kind of what other people thought. Here's that young man. Do you like police officers?
4: No, I don't. Um, And I say this because, like, I have family members, like one or two family members that are cops. But when I was younger, it was like, I was like, oh, I want to be an officer and all of that stuff. But as I got older and I kind of had, like, Like, I'm not going to really say run-ins, but, like, situations with cops, and I had family members that got, like, locked up over not, like, things that they really did and stuff like that. It kind of made me really not like them. So, overall, I don't really see them as people that's, like, serving and protecting, because it's a lot of people getting, like, killed and stuff, but they're not trying to help and solve and stuff like that.
0: What's the worst experience you've ever had with a cop?
4: so like two years ago i was walking with a friend of mine and we were just simply just walking to the store and this cop i guess kept trailing us and so we eventually turned around and because we noticed someone was following us but we didn't know who it was so we turned around we see a cop car and we're like we kind of like had a like a confused face so um... me and my friend both being african-american so we walked inside the store we come out and the cop is still right there, and he's asking me, where do you live? And where I live in my neighborhood is like a, a predominantly white neighborhood. So when I told him where I live, he was like, well, are you sure you live there? And I was like, how you going to like tell me if I'm sure I live there? So my friend and I, when we ended up walking to the gate, um, I got in the gate or whatever. And But the cop was still behind us, I guess, trying to make sure that we actually lived there. And then once we got inside the gate... He told the security guard, I guess, that let him inside the gate, like, I need to make sure that this dude really lives here. So just talking a whole bunch of trash. So once we got to the building and he talked to my mom, I guess, because I brought her downstairs, the cop honestly kind of like, I guess, felt like stupid because like he was like, I guess, like just judging me by like that I didn't live in a specific place. And it kind of made me mad. That's not nothing like too drastic. But yeah, that's a situation that I could think of.
3: I asked Zach if there were any big takeaways from his work on this project
0: big takeaway is that for me is that different people have different experiences and they all have a different perspective on life and things that happen, including police officers. Um, and that could be because of their social class. Uh, it could be because of how they were raised, their childhood, what their family was like. Um, so it really showed me that everyone is really different and their opinions Formulate because of their experiences. Um, so it taught me that you can't really group certain people together um, because they're all going to have different experiences and different answers. What can be done to change the way police are perceived right now?
4: If police officers were to, I guess, just stop trying to get an arrest like all the time, like because I have, um, because with family members, I was, I'm told, I was told that police officers, they kind of get their check, I guess based on how many arrests they get over a certain time, and I feel like if cops were so focused on just getting an arrest for any little thing, I feel like people wouldn't think about them as negatively, and plus if they, like, because it's a lot of cops that are dirty, that, like, since they're not getting, like, money that I guess that, like, you know they want they try to do other things I basically i feel like if they weren't if some cops weren't so like if the system wasn't so corrupt i feel like people would i guess respect them more
3: today's topic on the officer involved podcast where do we go from here The last month has been very interesting for American law enforcement. Grand juries have chosen not to indict police officers in the Mike Brown, Eric Garner, and John Crawford incidents. The Tamir Rice case is still awaiting a decision. These cases of use of force and physical restraint have been referred to in terms of police brutality, and subsequent discussions have been highly racially charged. In Ferguson, protests erupted overnight. Businesses were burned down leading to millions of dollars in damages. In fact, protests erupted across the country. New York, Oakland, Atlanta.
1: The list goes on and
3: continues with demonstrations now occurring every day, from school walkouts to citizen die-ins. A die-in is a sort of a nonviolent protest where a group of people lay down on the ground for a period of time a tactic often used by human rights and peace activists. This demonstration evokes the idea of mass killing or mass casualties. die ins have occurred at shopping centers, on overpasses, and in top colleges from Boston College to Emory University. In the last month, we've seen outward distrust of police officers, and the entire justice system, for that matter. If you're a police officer, a citizen, someone in another country, or an observer from outer space, you're probably left wondering the same question I am. Where do we go from here? One of the first officers I spoke to about this topic was Todd.
5: Todd Israel, and I work for uh, Washington State Patrol.
3: Todd's been a state police officer for the last six years, and he says that he's noticed a difference in how he's been treated by citizens just in the last two months, especially at a hospital where he works an off duty job
5: When I work extra security jobs uh, at one of our major hospitals here, um, I definitely have had uh, some more negative comment or uh, contacts with people um, everything from you know people walking by throwing their hands up and saying, hands up, don't shoot, um, to just, you know, just typical nasty comments. So, um, whereas you'd see that, you know, every once in a while in the past, but it definitely has, I've seen it more often in the last few months, for sure.
3: He says that he's also noticed bigger departments around the country working hard to promote positive interactions that police are having with their citizens. Todd told me that, He's hopeful because of situations like a recent citizen who called in and commended an officer.
5: Because this officer was nice enough to change their tire and stuff like that. I personally think um, departments should be doing that more. and Because the only exposure the general public has to us is what the news gives or our personal contacts with them. And so I think it, it's important for the departments to get out there and, uh, and be forward and show you know, the good that we do, um, and hopefully that will uh, take over the, the few bad stories that, that, that surface.
3: And I agree with Todd. I personally believe that we as police departments are behind the social media curve. I think policing in general wasn't ready for social media. When millions of voices can tell you what they think of an issue, or organize to affect change in real time, we're left on the back end responding and providing information. I think this sort of situation should be a wake-up call for police departments across the U.S. to set the tone and get ahead of the story. Get to know what your citizens think about local issues. Even if that means we're releasing information early and often. It's about time. And Todd said that despite bad press, despite bad situations, he recently had an experience that showed how much of a difference police officers can make
5: just when I was sitting in a jury trial a week ago and these uh, jurors during uh, the jury selection were saying uh, things that had happened uh, that stuck with them were, were just simple things that police officers had done. Uh, from, like I said, changing the tires or just letting them know about a brake light that was out. Just, these just simple little things that we do a million times throughout our career and don't really think much of. They stick with the people.
3: He said one more thing that sums up about what eight other police officers who I spoke with said to me. I'll let Todd say it, where he sees us going from here. Body cameras or dash cameras? In order to answer this question of where do we go from here from different angles, I reached out to two people, both of whom I have profound respect for. Each is a well-known voice on her side of the table. One, an outspoken speaker and instructor, and the other, a researcher and professor. I had a difficult time deciding who to share first. So I flipped the coin.
6: My name is Sergeant Betsy Smith. I have been in law enforcement as a dispatcher from 1976 until 1980, and then in 1980, I became a police officer. I retired in... 2009, after 29 years.
3: Sergeant Betsy Smith is an author and speaker known for her work on the Winning Mind series. Together with her husband, Dave Smith, Betsy travels around the country and teaches citizens and law enforcement professionals alike about things such as decision-making, tactics, and survival skills. She says that, in a 30-year career, She's seen a lot of transition and growth in the field of policing, but that...
6: What we're seeing now is, frankly, it's a bit of a throwback to before I was a police officer, back in the 60s and 70s, when I was a young person um, watching what was going on in our nation and the attitudes toward uh, law enforcement, toward the justice system. Uh, This is a very, very difficult time for law enforcement.
3: I asked Sergeant Smith, in her 30 years of experience, had she ever seen such unrest for a grand jury's decision?
6: Well, not not for a grand jury decision. I mean, we can go back to, um, you know, we can go back to L.A. and and um, the Rodney King incident and all that. But see, here's the problem. People don't understand the grand jury. They don't understand the grand jury process. They think, you know, you, like you've seen it called in the Mike Brown case, now, the secret um, proceeding and blah, blah, blah. Nobody understands the history of it—that it was implemented to protect the accused. People also don't understand that a pro- what a prosecutor's job is. They they view prosecutors as pro police They're actually the pro-justice. Their their job is to find out if um, you know the case before them is a good enough case to proceed. Um, and uh, you know, and that's you know that's why we have grand juries. I, so I've never seen anything like this when it comes to a grand jury proceeding. Um, you know, you can go back to a trial. I, I also have never seen our justice department as bizarrely involved in local law enforcement situations. and, and, and further, I've never seen them go along racial lines, so, significantly. Um, this didn't even happen in
3: the, in the 60s and 70s. Until very recently, she says, American police officers have had the support of their communities. But recent cases present a challenge to police officers and how they do their jobs. We have, in the last uh, 10
6: or 15 years or more, law enforcement has
3: really enjoyed,
6: really since nine we've enjoyed the support of most of our citizens. Now what we're seeing is, if you will, a call to revolution by young people who believe that there's a situation uh, with law enforcement that frankly doesn't exist. Partially to blame are, um, you know, the the young people themselves, but really more to blame, I think, are the media. Plus we have uh, social media. You can say whatever you want on Twitter and Facebook. I think what we're seeing is the facts don't matter.
3: I asked what type of changes she sees on the horizon for police officers.
6: Stricter use of force policies, potentially very dangerous
3: policies. Um, I
6: think that we're going to unfortunately see a lot of frustration by police officers. And and I think you're going to see some difficulty in recruiting quality, educated young people to this. Profession, which is just going to perpetuate the perceived problem. I'm not sure if I was a young person as well. If I Would I want to go into a profession where I'm perceived as, as a, a brutal um, thug who just wants to run around and randomly kill black people and beat people up?
3: We talked about what she was hopeful for in the future of policing. Sergeant Smith says that she's hopeful there are some news agencies who are focusing on the truth, that it's the age of the citizen journalist, and that there are a lot of quality young people coming up in the next generation who want to do the right thing and get involved in an appropriate way. Specifically, she mentioned soldiers who are coming home to enter into public service.
6: Our young people um, in our military right now, the, the kids who have gone to Iraq and Afghanistan voluntarily, um, so many of those are coming back and they're getting involved in law enforcement as well as um, you know, EMS, firefighting. Those are some great kids, and they give me a lot of hope.
3: And how does Sergeant Betsy Smith answer the question: Where do we go from here?
6: We need to move forward. Our citizens need to move forward, and so does law enforcement. And we need to work together to calm society down. We're, we're all we're all Americans, and we've got to go back
7: uh, to protecting ourselves and each other. My name is Jane Seminar Doherty and I am the program director and a professor at the Center for Justice and Peacebuilding at Eastern Mennonite University.
3: I just want to add here that long before I was a police officer, I had been in touch with Professor Doherty about her work and study of the Waco negotiations. For those who don't know about Waco or the Branch Davidians, I'll sum it up like this. It's actually really complicated, but... In 1993, a religious compound in Waco, Texas, inhabited by a group suspected of possessing illegal weapons, was raided by agents of the federal government who, at the time, had warrants. The 51-day standoff that followed resulted in several agents being killed. Toward the end of the standoff, the complex caught fire. Within that fire, some 76 people perished.
7: I wrote Learning Lessons from Waco. It was my actually my dissertation research when I was at George Mason University as a doctoral student. And to write the book, I I analyzed more than 12,000 pages of transcripts from the Waco negotiations between the FBI and the Branch Davidians. I was looking to to understand how did the negotiations succeed and how did they fail? Um, ultimately there was failure, but there were some successes in between. And I was very curious about that. And everybody said, well, it's because there are worldview conflicts. In fact, when I told my son, who was about seven at the time that I was going to study the Waco negotiations as a worldview conflict, he said, well, duh. How long is that going to take? And as it turned out, it took several years of really looking through the transcripts to try and understand how they reached some kind of agreements about reality that enabled them to succeed, and ultimately how they couldn't reach agreement and what led to the the ultimate failure. What happened in the case here is I'm reading the transcripts, and the Branch Davidians are using a lot of biblical references. It's all very meaning-rich language. And then I also had the logs from the hostage negotiators team, and they would literally summarize hours of conversation with the phrase Bible babble. And, and so all that meaning that the Branch Davidians were trying to communicate was meaningless to the law enforcement.
3: Several years ago, when I was in grad school, Jane's book, Learning Lessons from Waco, became a very important part of how I understood the concept of worldview. Worldview is sort of a concept for how we see the world. Essentially, what we know is reality depends upon many different factors experiences and circumstances
7: and i think it's the the problem with the the frame world view is actually that view tends to imply that there's a reality that we just see different parts of kind of like the blind men and the elephant you know so the elephant is there but we just see different parts of it or feel different parts of it it's actually more complicated than that. We actually construct our worlds. We actually shape our realities by the way we act because of how we're experiencing the world. And that's a kind of a new way of thinking about knowledge that we struggle with. So I think sometimes when people talk about world view, they emphasize the view part of it, and they're still thinking there's a reality that's given. And in some ways there is, right? Like if I bang my head against the table here, that table's real enough that I'm going to hurt. But in, in social realms, we're constantly renegotiating power and relationships and dynamics between us.
3: Jane and I mused on many topics from a social science perspective while we spoke. One of those topics was the idea of armored police equipment. I explained that in my worldview, when I saw a lot of media coverage of the armored equipment, it made sense. It made sense that the police would have this type of Equipment to deal with potential threats, if those potential threats do in fact exist. I asked her, "What does this say for the mindset of police officers?"
7: Well, I think that you know it's really interesting because I think our worldviews are also affected by artifacts, by objects and things that we encounter and use. So the more you militarize the equipment, the more you militarize the mindset. And if you start with that, then you're you are looking for um, for trouble, right? And the, I, the other thing that police need to keep in mind is they are the representatives, and we all need to keep in mind, police are the representatives of the state. If the state lacks legitimacy, then you have a really hard job, right? And in many ways, the state lacks a lot of legitimacy for communities that are becoming more and more impoverished. So um, I, I think a lot of people in the United States, frankly, uh, in some ways, me included, are quite skeptical about government right now. Um, I personally don't think the government is representing people's interests very well, period. I mean, just in maybe locally I have some, some faith in my own community government, but above that it's a little hard to see because of the influence of big money and corporations that the, the state really represents us or cares about us in many ways. Um, And so if that's the climate that we're living in, if people are saying, look, that state exists, but it's not legitimate, and you as a police officer are representing the state, you start one step back in terms of your authority. And then if you bring in military equipment and present yourself as very militarized, that simply reinforces the narrative of the state as actually against us.
3: Reinforcing the narrative of the state against us. That's a hard pill to swallow because I know many police officers who do have distrust for the government. I found it to be an interesting perspective to hear that police could be thought of as representatives of the state. We know that they are, but we don't think of it that way. She said that she thought it would be interesting to put on some of this equipment.
7: And walk around for a while and see how the gear actually affects how you see the world.
3: I told her that. I've had the responsibility of being put on a standby riot team. And when I had that gear on, one of the things that made up my worldview was that I hope I don't get attacked. In our conversation, she said that she believes that police and the military have become detached from the general public.
7: Police are professionals, but keeping order and making functional communities is a joint project of citizens and police together. It's not something we've outsourced to, to you all. We all have to take responsibility for it. And there are many things that have nothing to do with policing that go into making up safe communities and communities that function well for people who live there. And, um, the more we can involve people in that and the more we can have police officers involved in those conversations, the less likely we are to, to end up with this gulf, um, Obviously, people who are not police officers are never going to have the daily experience that you all have. Um, But we can bring that process closer together and we can can look at what are the things that we're doing as a society that are making your jobs way more dangerous.
3: So how do we have these conversations? At the time we did this interview, American police officers killed in the line of duty by gunfire were up 65% compared to the same time last year. This statistic comes from ODMP.org, or Officer Down Memorial page. I asked Jane, how do we integrate this information into the conversation when mainstream sources don't seem to be focusing on it? And she said that the number of officers killed by gunfire may just be an indicator that we live in a war zone. Maybe the system is broken.
7: I think we're on the verge of a, of a systemic breakdown in society. And I think there are many things that are, are fueling it that have very little to do directly with policing. I think the, the absolute growing inequality in the United States, the wealth gap, the kind of life opportunity gap that we are seeing and so many indicators of it um, make this part of the problem. And you can't discuss the problem of policing and violence and, um, and what's happening without looking at the context. You have to look at the container, too. And the container is a society that has growing inequality, growing power of corporations to control our lives, um, and a very kind of strong sense among a lot of people that they don't have a lot of choices in their lives. And when people feel hopeless and they don't have choices they will resort to things that are antisocial. Sometimes that's turned inward in drug addiction or, you know, self kind of damage. And other times it's turned outward on other people.
3: And then I asked, where do we go from here?
7: Well, I know where I'd like to see us go. And I think it's something that we're talking about with our program, kind of where do we begin to have conversations? And I think um, rather than say the conversation is only about um, policing, to say policing is, conversations about policing and about um, deaths um, at the hands of police officers, we should reframe that as violence between police and civilians. Like, so there's an increase on both sides. Rather than taking sides, we should say, okay, so the problem is there's an increase in violence between police officers and citizens going both directions what is that telling us about our society and um, so I think that's the first question and what we have to do is find um, ways to have conversations meaningful conversations about that I think some some really facilitated dialogue processes between people like you and people in in the policing community who are ready to talk with citizens to say why are we seeing this what's the problem how do we engage this
3: That was Jane Doherty. The interviews and most of the editing in this episode of the podcast were completed before it was reported that two New York City police officers had been assassinated, shot, and killed on December 20th, while they sat in their patrol car. On the morning of December 21st, we woke up to the news of another police officer shot and killed. Separate incidents, but no doubt fueled by hate, distrust, and maybe as Jane said, a systemic breakdown. I'm thankful that I was able to bring all of these voices together in this episode to honestly speak about where we go from here. Thank you to Zach Karsh and his friends, Todd Israel, Sergeant Betsy Smith, and Professor Jane Doherty for their contributions to this episode. Thank you also to Officer Brian Sharp for allowing us to go out on the song. You can find his music on SoundCloud. I want to end this show with a thought. I used to say that opinions were like, well, you know the saying. But as I've gotten older, I've started to feel that maybe our opinions are more like raindrops. And go with me here. They all fall in different places, but eventually come together in the ocean. And that makes up our collective experience. And if you dig yourself in so much as to deny the validity of those who you may disagree with, in a sense, deny their humanity, the ocean the world is a very scary place. Officer Involved, the film is made possible by donations, commitment, and moonlighting. If you'd like to make a tax-deductible contribution or just check out our progress, please visit officerinvolved.org. That's officerinvolved.org. Thank you. Take care. And be safe.